was July 1961, the Green Bay Packers, first day of their training camp that summer. The last season had come to a rather frustrating, bitter end because they had blown a lead late in the fourth quarter and therein lost to the, the championship game to the Philadelphia Eagles. Those men had sat and stewed in that all through the offseason. Now, training camp upon them, they were ready to move forward, to you know, take control, see a new day, all that sort of thing. Their coach, however, had something different in mind. In his book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, David Moranis describes what happened when Coach Lombardi arrived there in the training camp. Here's a quote from the book. He took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. Some would say that that's the kind of message that the church needs today. This is a football. Given the state of our culture, and given, frankly, in honesty and candor, the state of the church, many are saying that it's, it's just we just need to forget about spanking, sparkly new strategies and just get back to the basics, to the essence, to the essentials. And I would say they've got a good point, a really good point. We don't need, really need anything new. We need to go back to that which was given that is old, the essentials and the very basics, the football. got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 16. This text that we're in this morning speaks quite provocatively to this idea of returning to the basics, the essentials of our faith. Matthew chapter 16, it's the first of the books of the, the New Testament, the first of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew 16. Now, we're delving into verses 21 through 28 this morning, but I want to, we need to rewind the tape, if you will, just a little bit for the sake of context and the flow to get a real sense as to exactly what's going on in the, the, the drama, the flow, and really some irony that, that, that takes place here. So we need to go back and start at verse 13. That's where we started last week. So I'm going to start in the reading at, at Matthew 16, 13, and then read on through the rest of the chapter, which is just verse 28. So Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, reading on through verse 28. Hear now the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, 
This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, help us hear, not just in the sense of the sound waves reverberating in our, in our ears, but in a much deeper sense, help us, help us to hear. These are challenging words, and if we're honest, we would acknowledge that there is great resistance within our heart in hearing what you're saying. We must then hear it all the more, and we must hear it from you. So we ask that you, the one who has created and fashioned us, called us, put us in these seats this morning, would give us yet also ears with which to hear you speaking. We pray this in the only name that we have, Jesus, amen. I know I'm a day late, but I am going to give you some etiquette rules when it comes to a royal wedding. And I apologize if you feel like it's too late, but frankly, I was pretty sure that none of you got invitations. So it's really not going to hurt you that bad that you're getting it a day late. So here are six rules, six rules that you need to know when it comes to a royal wedding. First of all, you just don't get to sit wherever you feel like. Uh, that would be one. Secondly, the bouquet, don't even think about ladies uh, catching it at the end of the service because it's going to be carefully laid down on the tomb of the unknown warrior. Thirdly, ladies, please do consider wearing a hat if at all possible. Uh, do follow, everyone, follow the queen's lead. If you do, in fact, this is the fifth one, if you do, in fact, have the opportunity to meet the queen, please don't make a fool of yourself. There's a lot of protocol as to how that works. And then sixthly, Ladies, especially to you, don't, for heaven's sake, wear white. That's a, there's a whole reason behind that, but that's part of the rules. Now, you may not like the rules. You may think they're ridiculous. But the fact is it's a royal wedding, and you're just a guest at this royal wedding, so you need to know and abide by the protocols. You need to, to mind your manners, know your place, do what's right, and let the royal family define what is and is not appropriate for this gathering. Last week, we were looking at this text, verses 15, excuse me, 13 through 20. Peter's confession, his proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that, it's a powerful statement, quite a pregnant statement of, of who Jesus is, of who, in fact, he is. Now, in the sequel to that, the uh, verses 21 to 28, we learn not just more of who he is, but why it is that he came 
and what it means to follow him. Or if I can put it this way, he's making it increasingly clear to us not just who he is, but his role and our response, a right, giving us a right, a true understanding, a deeper understanding of his role and our response. Or if I can put it this way, Jesus is the ultimate of all royal figures. This is a king who holds all kingdoms and indeed all creation in his hands. He is the Christ. Peter was absolutely right in what he said. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. We need to let him define what his role is and what our response is. You see that? We need to let, given who he is, we need to let him define those things and not think for a moment that it's ours to speak into that. Or if I could put it this way, let him define his messiahship and our discipleship. That's our two points. That's, it's a very simple outline. It's there in, in your, your, uh, your bulletin, that insert there. So let's just move through these. How does Jesus speak to his role? How does he define his messiahship? Verses 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, so Jesus lays out here very clearly a prediction. This is the first of four explicit statements that three more are coming in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus states of, of what's coming, that he's going, where he's going, and what's going to happen as a consequence of his, his going. He is going to Jerusalem. He is going to be put on trial by the Sanhedrin. He is going to be put to death by the Romans, and he is going to be raised on the third day. And this is not just a probability. There is a certainty to this. Jesus says, I, I must. There's a divine imperative to that, if, if I put it that way. By that meaning that this is part of the plan of God before the very foundations of the world. The Father orchestrating this plan, the Son accomplishing this plan, and the Spirit applying the results of what the Son has, has accomplished. So Jesus predicts this. He states this. It's going to happen. Now, Peter has no ears for this. And so he gives Jesus what we could call a talking to, which just defies at least all tradition because in the ancient world, a disciple was never even to criticize the teacher, much less publicly disagree with him. But it doesn't just defy tradition, it defies all logic. Just moments before, Peter has declared Jesus, this man that he is now rebu rebuking, giving a talking to, just moments before, G Peter has declared that same person to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what in the, in the world is going on here? Who's in the driver's seat, Peter? What's happening here? What's happening here is that Jesus' definition 
of his Messiahship makes no sense whatsoever to Peter. Peter has no categories whatsoever for what Jesus is saying. Peter's understanding of what the, who the Messiah was and what it was that he was come to be and do was to come and shake things up, to drive out the Romans, to take control, and to die this humiliating death in Jerusalem of all places, the, the, the seat of the temple and the Torah and, and everything else. He has no categories for this. He cannot hear it. It's absolutely impossible at that point for, for Peter to take this in. So when, when he hears Jesus speak of suffering, when he hears in, that in connection with, with, with the Messiah, he, 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 he tunes it out. It's kind of like, I think for us, when we get that phone call, and the person on the other end of the line, meaning well, says something like, okay, before I say anything else, you just need to know everyone's okay. Now, you've heard that, and that's meant to be a filter, a grid through which everything you hear is supposed to come, but you know where your mind goes. It goes not to best case scenario, but to worst case scenario. You're not hearing everything's okay. You're hearing everyone's dead. And you've got no ears with which to hear anything else. Well, okay, it's something like that in a weird sort of four-way with, with Peter here. Well, and it, next comes Jesus' words to Peter. Jesus, in so doing, demonstrates his resolve, and he has a rebuke of his own. Uh, with which to pronounce. Verse 23, but he turned. Can you imagine? Jesus turned and facing Peter and all the disciples watching this and listening to this. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Moments before, there in uh, verses 13 through 20, Jesus says that the apostolic testimony would be the rock, the foundation stone upon which Jesus would build his church. And now he's using that same imagery, rock stone, but in a completely different way and speaking to the same man, but for completely different reasons. And he's saying, no, in this, Peter, you are not a foundation stone. By your telling me, that, that, that I'm called to kingship without suffering, you are not a, found, a foundation stone. You are a stumbling stone. That's the literal translation of hindrance. So whereas the apostolic testimony of me as the Christ is meant to be the foundation stone upon which the church will be built, that I'm going to build this church, in re, basically you're refuting that, that is a stumbling stone, which by the way, and I alluded to this last week, points us toward, takes us towards just the, the reality that Peter in himself cannot be the foundation of the church. That's simply impossible. I don't want to get any further into that. If you want to talk about it later, we can certainly do that. But okay, so that's Jesus' words to Peter. Jesus also recognizes in what he's hearing Peter say the ultimate source behind, the ultimate voice behind Peter's words, because he doesn't just say, I mean, he, Satan, get behind me, Satan, is what he says very clearly there. 
And the reason being that Jesus recognizes it's the very same temptation that he has faced already. This is exactly what Satan, the destroyer, the accuser, the tempter, was attempting to do with Jesus, trying to get him to take a shortcut there in the midst of the wilderness temptation. Reign, sovereignty, kingship, rule without suffering, the shortcut. And Jesus will have none of this. And in so speaking so strongly, as he does to Peter, we see his resolve. We see yet more of his resolve to go to Jerusalem and to undergo what it is that he was going to undergo. He is absolutely emphatic about his role. He is absolutely emphatic about what his messiahship will entail. And he will not be dissuaded from it. Despite our resistance to that. You're like, wait, I was what Peter's speaking for us. He really is. We don't want to believe that we need that kind of Messiah. We really don't. And you think, uh, why, why do I say that? And what, what's behind that? What's, 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 what do I mean? The cross, the reality of the cross, what does it show us? What does it tell us? It shows us the lengths to which Jesus had to go to rescue us. The cross is as the lengths to which Jesus had to go to rescue us. And the, the dark side of that coin is, it shows us the depths to which we had sunk. It takes that kind of rescue to save us. That's the cross. Or if I can put it this way, the starkly. Our sin is that bad that it demands the cross. Now, I don't want to believe that. You don't want to believe that. None of us do. But that's what we stand to lose, the message of the cross, if we resist what Jesus is saying here in terms of he must go to Jerusalem. But it's not just, there's a corollary that goes with this. It's not just that our sin, the cross shows us our sin is that bad. What else does it show us? His love is that good. Do you see what we have to lose here? Do you see what's on the line here? It's all on the line here. His determination, the imperative, his messiahship going to Jerusalem. It's all on the line here. And there are ripple effects that come out of that. Our ability to be honest and transparent before him, to repent and confess our sin before him is on the line here. Our ability to do relationship well with one another is on the line here. Our ability to confess and repent our sin one to another is at stake here. And also to forgive one another our ability to extend the same grace and mercy one to another that we have tasted, that we have received from the Father is on the line here. Because if you've tasted nothing, what do you have to give? What do you have to give? Everything is on the line here. And yet, we need to acknowledge our resistance. Oh, how we need his mercy to hear this to hear that he must go to Jerusalem. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. We must let him define 
his role and his messiahship. Now, the next thing, the next point is, goes right alongside with this. It is directly connected to this. Not just his role and his messiahship, but our response and our discipleship. And that's what we'll pick up now where we left off. This is 24 to 28. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's clearly a cost. There's clearly a cost that Jesus is pressing here before. So the principle is this, of self-denial, deny yourself, of self-denial, of disowning yourself, of renouncing yourself, of laying down all of our vain pursuits after comfort and ease and approval and affirmation and power and influence and security and control and just laying all that down and letting it die. Self-denial, the denial of self. And then Jesus is, you know, to press that, he gives us this image. Deny yourself and take up the cross. And, and his hearers would have understood exactly what he's speaking to here. This is, it's sad, it's tragic that they would have known, but it's because of the custom of the time. A victim who was being crucified oftentimes was called on to, to carry, to shoulder, literally, the horizontal beam upon which they would be executed. And to carry that through the streets, through the jeering, scorning crowd, to the site where they would be executed. And that's the image, that's the language Jesus is using here when he says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and take up your cross and follow me. So he gives the principle, the image, and then this pattern. What's the pattern? Him. His life and his suffering is to be the pattern of our He is blazing a trail that is meant to be the very one that we are setting out on and continually all through our lives walk. If you're hearing what Jesus is saying here, this should terrify you. And if it's not terrifying you, you are not hearing him. He is saying the pattern of his life and suffering must be ours. This is not a metaphor. This is not just some image, a sermon illustration. <laughs> He's saying deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me. That we would hear that, the disciples would hear that. He gives them some encouragement. 
and oh, how they and how we do need that. And I'll get to that in a second, but it's so, so wide here. You know, we're just taken to the ground with this announcement, with this call. It reminds me, okay, so, so school is nearly out. Uh, I know for you teachers and students, not soon enough, but school is nearly out. Summer's nearly upon us. The pools will be opening soon. Swimming lessons are coming. And you put yourself in the position of that small child, that boy or girl. Some of us can remember this well. You bear the scar tissue for the memories, or, or as parents, right? And, and the child is being called upon to jump into the water knowing that their feet can't touch and they can't swim. Really? <laughs> That's terrifying when you, when you think of what you're asking that child to do. And that child desperately needs reassurance and encouragement. Reassurance and encouragement. And that's exactly what Jesus gives here in the following verses, knowing exactly how his, his listeners are, are hearing this and taking it in. He begins with a clarity of values, uh, helping us to see um, why, why there must be this pattern and why it must go. It simply has to be this way. Verses 25 and 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying here very starkly, and oh, how we need to be reminded of this. We, we in our, all of our modern convenience that, 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 that insulate us from the, the reality of the frailty of life. He is pressing upon us that te everything temporal is passing, which, by the way, includes our physical lives. The body is going to pass. The soul will last forever. Now, which are you going to trade for? That's what he's pressing on. Would you trade the value of the one of the, over the other? So he speaks here to the, the, the clarity, it gives us clarity in terms of values, and then as though that's not enough, certainty of, of judgment. How long? How, 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 how long do these days in which we live last? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Things are not always going to be this way. This world, this creation is not just going to continue on day after day after day after day as it is now. A day of reckoning is coming. A time of choosing. The time of choosing is now. The day of reckoning is coming. And Jesus is going to be that judge. And so he is pressing upon us the necessity of hearing what he is saying because of the reality of these values, because of the certainty of his coming. And if we, if the disciples were doubting for a moment the truthfulness, the reality of all of that, then he gives them yet more, a reassurance. Verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's a rich reassurance that they would have just I'm sure in the years to come, thought back on and just been in amazement. Now, there's a lot, of, a lot of scholars have differed in terms of exactly what Jesus means here. Some have said, well, 
This, this coming that he's making reference to here, it has to do with the thing that's coming right after this in chapter 17, the transfiguration. Some have said, well, no, it's not that. It's his resurrection. Some have said, well, no, it's not that. It's the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And some have said, no, it's not even that. It's the coming, his second coming. And I'll just tell you, I don't think there, any of those are right. Those who would actually say, no, it's not a specific event, but actually the steady advance of his kingdom. And in particular, specifically, in the multiplication of the number of disciples in this world, beginning with these disciples and through these disciples, and the spread of the gospel message into all nations, all peoples, which those, many of those men listening that day saw those very things. The point being, coming back to the point, Jesus is emphatic about his role and our response. His Messiahship and our discipleship. And he desperately desires that his people would be clear on these things. The problem is this, just like I said earlier with the last thing, our resistance, this visceral, deep-rooted, deeply-seated resistance to his Messiahship we have a deep-seated resistance to our discipleship. We don't want to hear this. We have an allergic reaction to what he's saying. I mean, just I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but it's just true. Nobody in this room is liking what they're hearing here. Just generally speaking, no one likes to be called to suffering and sacrifice. Pushing even beyond that, though, in the, in the 21st century West, because of all of our conveniences, because of how easy things are for us, we, we, there's a sense in which we have um, a sense of entitlement about us. We just assume and demand that everything will be easy, that everything will go well. And when it doesn't, we feel like we've been robbed of something because we're entitled to everything. That's the spell in which we live, in which we operate. But it's not just in this part of the world and in this culture. It's just religious people. I mean, you're in a church building, so I'm going to assume to some degree there's a few of you here. And religious people, this is how we think. God owes me. He owes me for all my obedience, for all of how I've done so well for him and for the people around me. And so, with all that sense of entitlement, you know, that, that, put this in the blender now, with all that toxic admixture put together and the sense of entitlement that we have, and Jesus tells us anything of a cost, anything of sacrifice, anything of suffering, we have no categories for that. We're like Peter. We have no categories for this. For him to speak of cost is nonsense because we're entitled. That's not who the Messiah is supposed to be, and we're entitled. Oh, how we need his mercy to hear these things. Oh, how we need his mercy to hear these things. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. Oh, we, how we need to let him define what it means for us to respond to him and to live as his disciples. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian in the first half of the 20th century who got this. He's likely best known 
for his book, The Cost of Discipleship. There's an extended quotation in your quotes and notes from that. Don't look at it. Not right now. Look at it later. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to jerk you around there. But there is a line in the middle of that that I'm going to quote. It's probably one of the best-known lines that Dietrich Bonhoeffer ever wrote. And it's this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, here's the beauty. Bonhoeffer, this was not just a theme of his writings. It marked his life. It was etched on his very, his very life. Uh, in the summer of, I'm going to give you a few examples. In the summer of 1939, he came back to the United States thinking at the time that this was the best thing for him to do, the best, if you will, position for him to take as the Nazis were ri rising and rising and rising in power there back in Germany. But very soon, within days of his arrival in New York City, he immediately realized this was a bad idea. He immediately realized, he began to have misgivings. This is a quote from one of his letters. I've come to the conclusion that I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. So he went back. He went back and risked it all. In the months following that, he became a spy, a spy for the Abwehr, the German intelligence service. Now, he could not explain this to his friends. That would have put them unnecessarily in harm's way. They are, so many of his friends are assuming Dietrich's, he's caved in. He's, he's, he's no longer the man we thought. No, he was exactly even more the man they thought, they thought he was. But he could not explain to them why he was working for the Abwehr, but he was actually a spy. And he was willing to do that and not explain, not justify himself. Why? Because he was willing to die to reputation, to die for the approval and admiration of other people. Part of bearing the cross. Pushing further, he became involved with a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Obviously, that plot failed, but there was an investigation that began, a dragnet that was spread out there. Bonhoeffer was caught up in that. He was imprisoned. In the months following, there was a German jailer who took sympathy upon him and gave him an opportunity to escape and get out. And Bonhoeffer declined for the sake of his parents and siblings because he knew they were already under suspicion. And if he was to escape, they would be imprisoned. And so he stayed. That was uh, September of 1944. He was later transferred to an extermination camp where on April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. He was a martyr. Now, a couple of lessons I want to draw from this. I'm going to tie this up. First, did you note the stages, the varying expressions of what it looked like for Bonhoeffer, even in those stretches of years, to deny himself to take up the cross and follow Jesus. It looked different in different places, different ways, different times of his life. It meant in, some, in one place, it meant uh, putting his safety at risk. In another place, it meant just dying to his reputation. In another place, it meant laying it all down. 
It means different things for different ones of us at different times and different ways and different circumstances, but it's all the same. It's the denial of self, taking up the cross, and following Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. How in the world did he do this? And how can any of us? Again, this does not necessarily mean martyrdom like it was for Bonhoeffer. But it will mean death. It will mean a dying to self. It must. It must. That's what the call to discipleship necessarily entails. It must mean a call to die. And here's the paradox. The only way we can hear and heed this call to die is in relationship with the living Jesus. That's the only way we can hear and heed this. This is the only way that Bonhoeffer or any of us would be able to do this. Bonhoeffer was a brilliant man, but he knew Jesus is not a principle. He's not an idea. He's not a theory. He's a person. The God-man, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who alone, who alone defines his Messiahship and what it means for us to follow him, our discipleship. Let's pray. Lord, just a few moments ago, we sang that beautiful old song, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. I fear for myself, and for many of us here, we don't really know what we sang. Oh, we ask for your mercy that you would not allow that to be just a bland metaphor, an empty concept, but indeed, you would make it the shape of our response to your love. Oh, we know, we know so little of the gospel without the cross. We will experience so little joy without self-denial. We will taste little of any fulfillment at all in this life without following you. We ask that you'd press these things into us. May, it, may this, this, this call to follow you show itself in every arena of our lives without any exception whatsoever. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And if we would be your disciples, we pray that you would help us to follow you. We ask this in your name.